Good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you'd open up a Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians the fourth chapter, that's where we're going to begin momentarily. We'll start there, but we will not end there. We'll be in a number of different passages throughout the New Testament this evening, but Ephesians chapter 4 will be our first stop. And as you're turning there and as you're getting settled in for this part of our worship tonight, I'll just say how great it is to be back with the Lake Street congregation. I was looking back through my stuff and I got to be back here and to speak back in, I think it was the spring of 2015 or maybe the fall of 2015. And uh, what that says to me is that says it took at least three years for the church to recover from whatever I did back then. But no, I'm just kidding. It's good to be back and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to come and to, to take part in this series of lessons this week. I think a lot of the other two guys who you all have invited to to be here this weekend, and uh, I trust that uh, this will be a very edifying and, and in some ways maybe even a very challenging weekend. Kyle was emailing the other us three guys and was telling us, hey, you know, pick out a lesson that uh, has to do with something that just you've just found that maybe just the church needs, uh, maybe in a general way, and uh, didn't give us a whole lot more parameters than that, just something that gets you fired up about and something that you think that local congregations of God's people, what they need, uh, and I kind of knew pretty quickly what I wanted to talk about. In some ways tonight, this lesson will not be pleasant, uh, and it will challenge us in some ways, uh, but I do think it's very needful, and so I appreciate the opportunity to come and to talk about these things. Let's begin by reading in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm reading here in the first three verses. In Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If I could direct your attention to the screen behind me, what do you think about this story that was published back in 1999 by the Landover Baptist Church? If you can't make it out, the headline reads this way, Church splits down the middle over issues regarding a piano bench. The story reads like this, and you most certainly are not going to be able to read that small print there. It goes like this. 100 years of Christian fellowship, spiritual love, godly unity and community growth ended last Tuesday in a fit of congregational discord not to be rivaled in this century. Holy Creek Baptist Church was split down the middle like the tabernacle cloth that tore at the point of our Lord's crucifixion. It is said that one could hear that rip a hundred miles away. Holy Creek Baptist was severed from the once stalwart cord of unity that bound them together. The fist of discord has pounded an army of Christian soldiers into two disheveled, unorganized factions of estranged members. The source of the dissension in this once holy house of God is a piano bench, which still sits behind the 1923 Steinberg to the left of the pulpit. Landover Baptist members who have friends or relatives at Holy Creek say that the old bench was always a source of hostility. One person said, people should have seen this coming. That congregation was getting ready to break for the last ten years. It's just a shame that it had to be over a piano bench. At present, the Holy Creek congregation will be having four services on Sunday. There's been an unspoken agreement that each faction will have its own separate service with its own separate pastor. We are told that the services are far enough apart that neither group will come into contact with the other. An outside party will be moving the piano bench to different locations and appropriate positions between services so as to please both sides and to avoid any further conflict that could result in violence. Question, do you think that that really happened? In a day when fake news is kind of the norm, it's worth asking that question. Do you think that that really happened or do you think that that story is fabricated? I'm looking across the room and I'm seeing lots of kind of in the middle. Well, I, I don't know. I'm not really sure. It sounds kind of far-fetched, but the same time, it kind of sounds like it might possibly be true. Well, you should know that it is a totally made-up story. 
This was posted on a website that kind of deals with religious satire. But here's what makes it funny, and really this is what makes satire funny. The fact that all of us, even if maybe it was, even if it was just for a split second, the fact that all of us thought to ourselves, hmm, you know, I can actually see people who would call themselves Christians acting that way. I think that probably says something. I think that probably says something about how we think about discord within a local congregation. Because the truth is, probably every single one of us in this room this evening could probably tell a story about church discord from our own personal experiences. If you hang around God's people long enough, you're going to have a story to tell just like this one. And even if it's not as dramatic as this one, you will have stories to tell about friction and about strife and about conflict amongst the people of God. Maybe it'll be a story of sitting in a Bible class where two brothers are disagreeing on some particular point. And you can tell that one of those brothers is starting to get angry because he's talking a little bit louder, talking a little bit faster. You can maybe even see on the back of his neck those capillaries in his neck. They're starting to burst and look a little bit red. And the whole conversation, it's just getting a little bit north of that uncomfortable line. Have you ever been in that environment before? I have. I remember years ago being in a congregation that practically broke out into a civil war over the issue of whether or not women could wear slacks to worship. It was such a contentious issue within that group, it actually ended up later being dubbed the Battle of the Britches. And I'm not making that up. That is what they refer to it as to this very day. And I was there and it created a considerable amount of strain amongst that local body of believers. Or maybe you've been part of a congregation that for whatever reason just ended up experiencing a total split. Where you showed up one Sunday and everybody was there and everything seemed fine and dandy. And then you showed up the next Sunday and half the people were gone. Half of the pews were were not even filled. You stick around God's people long enough and you will have a story to tell. And I want to be clear about that. I started with this kind of humorous story. I want to be clear when we talk about discord, it's not funny. It's not. It's disappointing. And it is discouraging. Whenever things of that nature happen within a local church and you have to try to work through that, that is hard. That is really hard. But I'm going to tell you what concerns me more then people who get a little disappointed by discord or people who get a little bit discouraged by discord, what concerns me the most are the people whose faith is just absolutely destabilized by that. Because one of the saddest consequences of discord amongst local church families is that it very rarely happens without there being some spiritual casualties along the way. It has been my observation that whenever fusses occur within the church, the most disheartening effect of that is when someone is so damaged or they are so disturbed or so demoralized by that that they end up losing their faith. They end up leaving the church. They end up leaving the Lord. They just quit Christianity altogether. Which is why I'm going to say to you this evening that the time to buy an umbrella is not in the middle of a hurricane. The time to buy an umbrella is before the hurricane ever even comes. And this evening, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the storm of discord. I want to talk about dealing with discord before that storm ever even makes it here. I'm telling you this evening, Kyle has not said, Hey Josh, we're experiencing some problems and so I need you to talk about discord. That conversation did not happen. I am not aware of anything that's going on here. In fact, I'm hopeful that what's going on in this congregation is what we just read about right there in Ephesians chapter 4. That there is a a seeking to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is the ideal, isn't it? That we would be maintaining unity, preserving peace within the body of Christ. But I'm going to tell you that one of the ways that we do that is by being prepared to deal with discord and to deal with that in the right way when it comes. Because if it's going to happen, and it will, 
And if there is a chance that that could be damaging to my faith, and it could, then it seems to me that it would be very prudent on our part to talk a little bit about how to cope with discord whenever it occurs within the body of Christ. It is, without a doubt, one of the devil's most effective tools. You think about the tools that the devil has used on the church just historically. In the very beginning, what did the devil try to do? The devil brought about persecution upon the Lord's church in the beginning of the first century. When the devil found out that that did not work on everybody, then the devil would send false teachers and false religion and false ideas to try to destroy God's church. When the devil realized that that didn't work entirely, then I think the devil realized that he could do a whole lot of damage from the inside out. And we're still dealing with that even to this day. It is one of his most effective tools for frustrating the work of God and we need to know how to deal with that so that we can weather that storm when it comes. This evening I want to offer you three things, three very practical and three very direct things that will help us to respond to discord and to do that in a godly and righteous way. And the very first of those things is something I've kind of already been hinting at already, and that is we need to just start by accepting reality. You know, I've already said a couple of times this evening that if you hang around God's people long enough, you're going to have an experience with discord. Yet I think for some people, and maybe this is especially true for for new converts, babes in Christ, people who maybe come out of the world and then they become Christians, it's kind of almost hard to fathom that God's people, that Christians, that, that they could act in such a way that would create friction and problems? Well... Well, that just can't be. I mean, we expect that out there, right? We would expect all kinds of contentiousness and problems when dealing with people outside of here. But here, of course not. I mean, a belligerent co-worker, well, yeah, of course you're going to have to deal with that. An irritating neighbor, well, duh, of course you're going to have to deal with that. But Christians ungodly, contentious behavior from brothers and sisters in Christ. Come on, we don't expect that kind of behavior in here, do we? In fact, sometimes we even refer to these gatherings and these assemblies as, a, as an oasis, don't we? We talk about how this is, this is a reprieve from the world. I often talk about that with Wednesday night Bible study. I love midweek Bible study. Been out in the world all week dealing with sinful and wicked people and encountering all of that. It's nice to get away from that right in the middle of the week and come in here to be with God's people, get to focus on spiritual things, get my you know, focus recalibrated, if you will. We talk about that as being an escape. It's an escape from all of the ungodliness of this world. What we expect is that these gatherings are going to be a haven for peace, and for joy, and for encouragement, and for spiritual refreshment. But what happens? What happens when we come into this place, and that is not what we find? What happens when we come into this place, and instead what we find are two brothers bickering and chewing and just back and forth during the Bible class period? Or maybe it's not something in a kind of an open way. Maybe it's something of a more personal nature. You know what? That sister has not spoken to me for the past four weeks. What's her problem? Or you know what? That brother, he is talking to me. Actually, he's not talking to me. He's talking about me and he's talking about me behind my back to somebody else. Or what if we come in here and somebody's mean to my kid, mistreats my child? We do not expect that kind of conduct from our brothers and sisters in the Lord, do we? And yet all too often when that does happen... We become disillusioned and we become disenchanted. Here's my question about all of that. Is it reasonable, is it realistic to just always expect that there is going to be peace and harmony amongst God's people? Is that something that we should just expect is going to be the norm 100% of the time? I think that's the perception that we have developed But I'm not entirely convinced that that is a biblical perception. Because when I open up my New Testament, I do not find any local congregation that just served as a bastion of peace and harmony all of the time. Classic example of that 
That would be the letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, are you familiar with 1 Corinthians? Was that church just a model of peace and unity? Hardly. You open up 1 Corinthians, you really can't even get out of the first chapter with realizing that there is discord there. In chapter 1, Paul just starts the letter by just addressing what's going on. The quarreling and the division that was present amongst that body. You get to chapter 3 and Paul highlights and just kind of singles out what was the source of all that division. That would be their spiritual immaturity. You get to chapter 6 and what you find out is that these brethren are actually dragging one another into court for civil matters. You get to chapter 11. You find out that they're mistreating one another in their observance of the Lord's Supper. Then you get to chapters 12, 13, and 14. These folks are even at odds with each other over the use of spiritual gifts. I wonder what Corinth looked like on a Wednesday night, don't you? Somebody might say as I talk about Corinth, somebody might say, okay, 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 Josh. I get it, but you know what? Corinth was a uniquely bad situation. And I'll buy that. Maybe it was a uniquely bad situation, but I'll say this. It was not a unique situation, not by any stretch of the imagination. Look, for example, in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, you are familiar with that first church, the Jerusalem church. We often point to that church as being such a great model for us. They had the apostles laboring there amongst them and all the wonderful things that were happening within that congregation. You get to Acts chapter 5, though. You know what happens in Acts chapter 5, don't you? The story about Ananias and Sapphira. Listen folks, I've been in some pretty uncomfortable church services before, but I've never been in a service where people died. In Acts 5, people died. And the problems didn't stop there. You turn the page to chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, there's this big uproar going on in the congregation because there were some folks over here who felt like a certain segment of that congregation was being neglected. And people over here, well, they were being taken care of, but these folks over here, they weren't being taken care of. And that caused some conflict there. And it's not just in the early stages of the book of Acts. Look in Acts 15. You get to Acts chapter 15 and what's going on there. There's a huge blow-up going on about the issue of Gentiles and circumcision, whether we need to bind circumcision as a, as a test of fellowship. Then you start getting into the epistles and it still doesn't stop. I think about that letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. It's such a joyful letter. Then you get to chapter 4 and Paul actually has to call out two sisters in that congregation. Calls them out by name because they're fussing and fighting and it was obviously causing disruption. Or how about in Galatians chapter 5 and in verse 15 where Paul warned those congregations as that circular letter went around. He said, look, if you guys are going to keep biting and devouring one another, then don't be surprised when you are consumed by one another. And so while I will grant that yes, Corinth may be a uniquely bad situation, it hardly is unique when you look at the pages of the New Testament. And so what are we saying? Josh, somebody's maybe asking, Josh, well, what are you saying? I'm wondering if maybe I'm hearing this exactly right. Why don't you listen to me very, very carefully? I am not trying to say or advocate this evening that having fusses and having discord within the body of Christ, that somehow that's okay. That that's just something we ought to just be fine with. Can you grab that passage in 1 Corinthians 1 again? Go back there and look at that. In 1 Corinthians 1, I want you to notice that Paul does not just address the fussing in Corinth. He rebukes it. And he does it quite fiercely. In 1 Corinthians 1, look in verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I am invoking my authority as an apostle here that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Understand very clearly that it was not okay that these brethren were having fusses. But there's no denying that they had fusses. Disciples do misbehave. And I want us to understand that. And I want us to come to grips with that reality. That those fusses and those arguments and those differences, 
They do create problems. That doesn't make it right. But that is reality. And I believe that when we accept that reality, and that's really where this needs to start, I think that then helps us to to realign our expectations. Because what will happen, first of all, is we'll stop expecting that the local church is going to be some sort of a spiritual Caribbean resort where it's just paradise all of the time and we're all you know over here and we're swinging in the hammocks and it's just oh it's just great all the time no and furthermore whenever discord arises and occurs i think we'll stop seeing that as being just whoa i never would have expected that boy that's so strange i can't possibly believe in a million years that god's people would act that way no rather we'll just come to see that that's part of the reality of being in a family. By the way, since I just used the word family there, can I just ask you, is there always peace and harmony in your physical family? There's only three of us in my house. Me, Tiffany, and Hattie. I'm glad they're all here with me this evening. But I'll go ahead and tell you, it is not always rainbow and sunshine there. Sometimes we got to work through some stuff. And that can be hard and difficult. That's even just with three of us. Why then would we expect anything to be different when we come together into a group where I think it was 30-something, 37, 40 people? Would we expect things to be any different in an even bigger group? 30, 40 people? I think that actually leads quite well then into this second point this evening. And that is, in our dealing with church discord, what we need to do is we need to be ready to... It's wanting to install updates right now. We're not doing that right now. I'm preaching. Here we go. What we need to do is we need to be ready to reassess the cause of the discord that's going on within the congregation. You know, if someone were to ask the question, why do we have problems? Why do we have fusses? Why do we have conflicts from time to time? I think what our knee-jerk reaction is, is to say, well, I'll tell you why we're having problems. It's because people are just wicked. There are wicked people, evil people, and they're doing evil things, and that's the reason we got all these evil problems in our midst. I think that, that, that's kind of our knee-jerk answer to that question. And to be fair, yes, sometimes that is the cause. Would you look in 3 John, please? In 3 John, I'll show you that that was the cause sometimes, even in New Testament times. In 3 John, John's third epistle, there was an evil man in the congregation. And I don't even hesitate to even say that. There was an evil man who was causing problems and John just singles him out. In 3 John, there in verse 9, John says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, he does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'm going to bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and he also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Notice the beginning of verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. I'll tell you the cause of the discord in that congregation. There was an evil man doing evil things and his name was Diotrephes. And you know what? That's not an isolated incident. We see that also in other places in the Scripture. Like for example in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20 and in verse 30, as Paul was warning the Ephesian elders as he's giving him those those, those last words before he departs their midst, he said to those elders, he said, from among your own selves, evil men will arise and they will disrupt the flock. So you need to be watching out for them. And so sometimes, yes, Yes, discord sometimes is the result of evil people who do evil things. And I would just add right here that God knew that. God understood that that could happen. And so God has actually given the local church a process for dealing with that. You know what the Bible calls that? The Bible calls that withdrawing ourselves from those who are factious and who would cause divisions. That's what Paul told Titus to do. That people with evil motives who are disrupting the body of Christ, they need to be withdrawn from. 
If we're going to thrive as a congregation, we cannot and must not tolerate some evil man pressing his or her agendas month after month, year after year, decade after decade. As a result, it hinders our growth. That can't happen. We need to deal with that. But can I just be honest with you? Evil people doing evil things, that is not the only cause of discord within a local congregation. In fact, I'll take it a step further. I don't even think that bad people doing bad things, I don't even think that that's the reason for discord most of the time. I think most of the time discord happens because we have good people who are doing bad things. And that's why I say we need to stop and reassess the cause of the bad behavior. Where's the bad behavior coming from? Because it may be that this problem that we're dealing with, it may be not because my brother is a Diotrephes. It may be, first of all, because he's just spiritually immature. Doesn't that happen? Look in Colossians with me, please. In Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, I want to just notice something here. Because in this passage, I really like this passage, Paul describes how it is that disciples, how Christians grow, In Colossians chapter 1, I'm reading here in verses 9 and 10. Paul says this, he says, And so, from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you see the process there of spiritual maturity that Paul is describing? Paul says that we are filled with all knowledge of God's will, verse 9. Over time, that's then going to give us wisdom. We'll have understanding so that we can then, verse 10, walk. And walk there is really just a metaphor for how we live. We can live our lives in a way that pleases God in everything that we do. We're bearing fruit for Him. And in fact, it doesn't even stop there. We continue to increase in our knowledge and understanding. Does everybody see that process there of studying, gaining wisdom, gaining understanding? We start living that out and then as a result of all of that, our lives please the Lord. you see that there? Let me ask you this. How long... Does that process take? Is that something that just happens overnight? No. We're all shaking our heads. Of course not. We recognize that is a lifelong process. We do that stuff right there for the rest of our lives, don't we? Well, would you then take that realization and that truth, and we're all on the same page about that, would you take that realization and then think with me for a moment about a guy who's been a Christian for a year. Let's call him Bob. Do we have any Bobs here tonight? Okay, fictional Bob over here. Bob over here, he's only been a Christian for a year. He has come out of the world. He had really no prior religious background or upbringing. None of that yet. We do have a Robert. I just now realized that. We're going with Bob though. Bob's come out of the world, has no prior religious upbringing, no real understanding of anything. And, and, and so he's, he's brand new. I mean, he's, he comes out of that water and he very seriously is a babe in Christ. But here's the thing about Bob. He is super serious about his Christianity. He's not waffling on that at all. He comes up out of that water and I mean he devotes himself daily to prayer and to Bible study. He's reading and studying God's Word. He's at all of the assemblies. He's spending time with other Christians. He's then applying the things that he has learned and understood. Can I ask you, at the end of that first year of his Christianity, how much does Bob know? If we're being honest, Bob probably doesn't really know all that much. At least not as much as he's going to know after 30 years, right? And so let's think about Bob for a second. Here's this Christian who's he has been a Christian only for a year. He's got no prior spiritual background. No relation with the idea of being a part of a local church. Do you think chances are going to be pretty good that somewhere along the way there, he's going to blow it? Somewhere along the way there, he's probably going to put his foot in his mouth. That somewhere along the way there, he's going to make a misstep. Oh, you know he's going to. 
Lots of people who begin that new walk with Jesus Christ, they come into this thing with all kinds of struggles and bad habits and just ignorance that just has to be overcome, has to be chipped away at little by little. Of course you know Bob's going to blow it. We see that even in the Bible. Look at Acts chapter 8, please. In Acts chapter 8, this is the account of Philip there in Samaria. And there's all these great conversions happening. And one of the people who are converted there in Samaria is this guy named Simon, who we come to find out is involved in, in, in witchcraft and sorcery. Simon the sorcerer, we call him. Sometimes people, when we talk about Simon the sorcerer, sometimes people will say, well, I think the reason Simon messed up is because, well, he was never really a Christian in the first place. And, and, and I think to say that, I think that just denies what the text just plainly says. I believe that Simon was all in with Christianity. And yet there is this moment, verse 18, where he sees the apostles laying their hands on people. And as a result, they are imparting real spiritual gifts. And so Simon's old way of thinking, it starts creeping and bubbling back up to the surface. And he thinks to himself, wow, I see dollar signs here. I think some money could be made off of this enterprise. And so he then offers, verse 19, he offers to buy those gifts from the apostles. And of course, you know what happens next, don't you? Peter ends up rebuking him. And I mean, Peter doesn't pull any punches. He rebukes him and he tells him, Brother, you need to repent. You need to pray God for forgiveness right now. Well, what do we have there? Here's just what I want us to see. What do we have here in Simon? We have a guy who as a result of what he's doing, it's created some trouble. It's created some conflict in that community of believers there. Here's this brother who he just wasn't there yet. He didn't know and understand everything that he needed to know and understand. He still had a lot to learn. He's a guy who's he's just still very immature. You ever known somebody like that? I've been talking about fictional Bob up here. Been talking about Simon the sorcerer. But have you ever known somebody like that personally within the body of Christ? I have. Somebody who's got some bad habits and they bring those bad habits in with them and they're trying, we're working with them, we're trying to be patient with them, but sometimes, sometimes it ends up kind of showing and manifesting itself in a bad way. Listen, folks, when you bring bad habits into your walk with Jesus Christ, the thing is, that stuff doesn't just magically disappear the moment you're baptized. It doesn't. You gotta work at that. It takes time. You're gonna have to be patient with folks. You can't just flip a switch and turn it off all the time. And sometimes even as you are working at it, and sometimes as your brethren are being patient with you, you're going to fall. You're going to mess up. Let me ask you, that ever happened to you in your walk with the Lord? Think about when you first became a Christian. Think about that first year or that first couple of years when you were a Christian. That ever happened to you? Did you ever fall down? you ever mess up in some way? How did you want people to treat you when that happened? I think maybe we need to take that into consideration more whenever bad behavior creates disruption and friction within the body because it may not be due to the fact that here's this wicked, evil person. No, it may just be we've got a brother or a sister who is spiritually immature. I would add to that though, it may just be that discord is the result of someone with spiritual weakness. I'm thinking here specifically of Peter. Would you look in Galatians 2 please? In Galatians chapter 2, Paul is the writer here, and he talks about a particular episode with Peter. In Galatians 2, look in verse 11. In Galatians 2 and in verse 11, Paul says, When Cephas, that's Peter, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. And he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews, they acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led away by their hypocrisy. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is you've got Peter. You've got a guy who, I think he's someone that we would consider a mature disciple, right? He's an apostle. He's a leader in the Lord's church. But he is acting hypocritically. And it's causing some problems and some friction there. 
So much so that Paul feels the need to go and confront him and openly rebuke him. And he does that, verse 14. Does that in front of everybody. And you have to imagine that would have created a really awkward and tense situation. Can I ask you this? Is Peter just an evil man? Is that what we got here? We got just an evil, wicked guy doing evil, wicked things? No. I don't believe that for one second and I don't think that you believe that for one second. I believe just the opposite about Peter. I believe that Peter was a good man. Well, why is he doing this, somebody might ask. I believe it's because Peter was also a weak man. Peter had weakness. In fact, this is not even the first time that we have seen Peter act in this way, is it? Being intimidated by a crowd, peer pressure, and as a result, he does what's wrong. I think we have every evidence to believe that this was something that Peter struggled with maybe for all of his whole life. It was a weakness for him. You have any weaknesses? Or you just, you just got it all together? you just perfect as can be? I joke all the time about how perfect I am and I say that very tongue-in-cheek knowing all of my weaknesses or many of my weaknesses at least. You ever have any weaknesses? You ever struggle with your temper? You ever, you ever have an issue with pride? You ever have problems with being self-willed and you always have to have your way all the time? Do you ever struggle with loose lips and gossip? You ever said something to somebody about someone else and as soon as you got done saying it, you walked away from that conversation thinking, why did I do that? I, I should not have said that. Why, I, why do I keep doing that? Well, what's the problem there? Are you just some evil, corrupt individual? Just black with sin all in it? Is that the issue here? Or is it possible that you're a good person just overcome by spiritual weakness? Stop and think about this. When my immaturity or my weakness, whenever that leads to failure, maybe even a failure that hurts and damages others, How do I want people to treat me in that moment? You see, it's that kind of reassessment in our minds, thinking about this from all angles. I think it's that kind of reassessing of the bad behavior that really helps us to start dealing with discord in a more constructive manner. Instead of just jumping to the conclusion, oh, that brother or that sister, they're just a diatrophies. They're just a bad person. They're just evil and wicked that may not even be true at all. In fact, I'll tell you that in the 22 years that I have been a Christian, and even for the 37 years that I have been associated in in and around the Lord's people, I have met some people who I believe were genuinely evil, and they were just masquerading as Christians. They were masquerading as God's people. But you know what? I can count all of those people on one hand and I don't even need to use all of my fingers to do that. And the point I'm getting at is that I think that's very rare amongst God's people. I have not encountered very many brethren who are just intentionally wicked and evil and they're just looking to disrupt and to cause discord. Most of the Christians that I have encountered in my life I think are a lot like me. People who are trying to do the right thing, but who struggle with moments of weakness or who struggle with spiritual immaturity. It is not their intention to purposely cause discord. It's merely the byproduct of dealing with imperfect people. And I need to think about that. And you need to think about that. That kind of honest assessment, I think that can really help us to process discord in an entirely different way. All of that then brings me to this third and final point this evening. Maybe this is the most applicable point. The point that's the kind of the, the takeaway for the evening, if you will. Whenever we are going through a period of strife and discord, what is it that we should do? What should our actions be? We've already spent some time, already in these first two points, adjusting our thinking, right? Rethinking our, our attitude and how we approach these things. What then do I need to do whenever the congregation is going through a a rough patch? Well, can I start by offering a couple of things that we don't want to do? Let me say first and foremost, and really this should go without saying, 
that the idea of quitting Jesus, that cannot be an option. It cannot. That somehow that that's the way that we're going to react to problems within the church. I'll just quit the Lord. In fact, I'll just be very candid here. I have never understood why discord would cause someone to just outright abandon Jesus Christ. You know, here's problems going on within the church family. And so somebody decides, well, the way I'm going to deal with that is I'll stop going to church. I'll stop showing my face around there. I'll stop worshiping the Lord. I'll stop trying to walk the straight and narrow path. I'll just stop serving Jesus entirely. Can I just ask you, why is that Jesus' fault? Why is that His fault? If my brothers and my sisters acted ugly or they didn't act in the right kind of way, why is that the Lord's fault? You know, talk about the idea of you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face. What exactly? Because my brethren misbehave badly, who exactly is harmed by that decision? I decide I'm just going to quit everything. Who is really the one being harmed there? Leaving the Lord, that is a terrible reaction whenever discord takes place. But then let me say, secondly, And I think sometimes this is the more common reaction that we are prone to have. That whenever discord happens, what I'll do to deal with that is I'll just pack up my family and I'll just go somewhere else. I'll just look for greener pastures elsewhere. And when that happens, when that is folks just kind of first line of defense, what I want to ask is, and I've gotten into the habit of just doing this, Folks talk about there's, there's tough things going on in the congregation where I'm at. and So we're just going to go over here. You know what I've got in the habit of asking those folks? I ask them, okay, that congregation you're going to go to, are there going to be people there? That's an important question. Are there going to be people in that congregation? And of course the answer is always, well, well yeah, of course. That's what the church is. The church is people. It's saved people. Well, guess what? If there's people there, then you're going to find the exact same stuff in that church too. There's going to be spiritually immature people there. There's going to be people who have spiritual weaknesses there. Which means there is bound to be, at some point or another, strife and discord and problems in that church too. You know, I have had the privilege of preaching in dozens and dozens of churches. And I have yet to find a single one that has never had any kind of turmoil. In fact, I have been advised by people who are older and wiser than me that if I ever find the perfect church, don't go there. You'll just mess it up. And I think that's exactly true. I would mess it up. I have never preached for a single congregation that's just got it perfectly going on all of the time. And why is that? Because the church is made up of people. Imperfect people. And so if my immediate reaction to discord and to strife is I'm going to pack up my family and we're going to head down the road to that church over there. And I I think this is a particularly poignant point to make in this particular area. There are so many good and faithful groups within a reasonable driving distance here within the, the Lexington, Fayette, this particular kind of area of the country. And I think that's very easy for folks to do. Uh, You know what? There's the slightest hint of some turmoil here. We're out of here. We can just go to... In fact, this church over here, it's even closer to where I live. The idea that I'm going to go over here to a place where there's never going to be any kind of discord or any kind of strife, that is foolish at best. Which means that by making that choice, what I may be doing is I may be depriving God's people of the stability that I could help provide during turbulent times. Which means that point number three as to what I need to do is I need to be a pillar. That's what I need to do. I need to be a pillar in times of discord. Because you know what? It might be my presence and my example and my admonitions that that is exactly what is needed in order to pull things back together. This church, it's my understanding, this congregation has been in existence for about 40 years or so now. And I am certain, I don't know all the history of everything that's going on here, but I am certain there's been some difficulty and some strains throughout this congregation's history. And I am also aware of the fact that there are people here today who were here back then. They were here back during those troublesome and difficult times. And you know what? They didn't leave. They stayed. They weathered those storms. 
They served. They served as a calming influence in that time. They served as a voice of reason during that time. They served as a pillar. And they held the house up, so to speak. And guess what? That's the kind of people we need. That's the kind of people that God's people, wherever congregations are, that's the kind of people that the Lord's people need. When the going gets tough, we need people who are going to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Now, I want to put just a little bit of balance on what I've just said. I recognize that some of you are part of this local family because you left a congregation elsewhere that was experiencing some problems and some discords. And I can't just stand up here and say that I would not have made the same decision if I were in your shoes. I've known the folks who they did stick around during times of discord. And they tried. They tried their level best to to make it work. They they, they tried to, to keep things tied together. They tried to be an influence for good. They tried to stand for truth and doctrinal purity when it seemed like the church was going into apostasy and false religion. They fought that battle. They stood in the trenches there. They did all that they possibly could until finally a time did come where they realized we can't stay here any longer. We are going to have to go elsewhere. And so please understand this evening, I am not saying that there is never a time to leave. But what I also want to say is that we need to be making sure that we have done everything that we can to fight the good fight, to maintain the unity of the Spirit before we jump to that decision. In fact, what I'm saying here this evening is, is that we need people who are, going to be, who are going to be peacemakers. Matthew 5 verse 9. We need people who are going to be pursuing the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. Romans 14 verse 19. We need to be diligent to preserve unity and peace. Ephesians 4 verse 3. Maybe what that means is is that means you're going to be the person who's going to play the role of Paul in what Paul did for Peter. You remember those verses we read a moment ago? You may be the one who's going to have to go to that brother or go to that sister and say, Hey, I don't want to have this conversation, but we need to have this conversation. The way you acted in Bible class last night, that wasn't right. You need to correct that. We need to talk about that. Or you know what? You shouldn't have acted in that way. Or you shouldn't have said those kinds of things. That wasn't right. You may be the one that helps to to mend those fences. Maybe what that means is, is that means you're going to stick around and you're going to fight the battle because you're going to be the one that's going to go and mentor someone who is spiritually immature. We've got young people and young families in this congregation and especially as new converts are brought into the fold, they're going to need some people with a little bit of gray in their hair who have some age and some wisdom about them who's going to be able to go to them and say, Hey, let me me talk to you a little bit. Why don't you come on? Let's go get coffee one day. and Let's just sit down and talk. Let's study the Bible together. Then you're going to take that person under your wing, so to speak. And you're going to help guide them along. You might be the exact right person to help them to grow spiritually. Maybe what that means is that means you're going to be the one who just always encourages the rest of us whenever things look dark and bleak. You think about the effect that our news media has had upon us. So much bad news. And whenever bad news is reported, what happens? We just feed right into that. Just all so much negativity and ugliness. Maybe you could be the one that just puts an end to the negativity. You're the person who's just always optimistic, always cheerful. You're the person who comes into that building with a smile on your face every time and says, you know what, we're going to make it through this. We're going to see the other side of this thing. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And you know what, we're going to make it. Or you know what, you might be the person, you might be the person who's just always here. That as we pass through those dark waters of discord, You're just the person who just keeps showing up Sunday after Wednesday after Sunday after Wednesday. You just keep doing the Lord's work. You just keep loving God's people even when they're acting very unlovable. You just remain constant in your service. You just keep being a pillar. And what all of this is to say is that when storms and discord comes, the question is... Am I going to be prepared for that? Will we as a congregation, will we be prepared for that? 
Will I recognize, first of all, that dealing with problems and adversity, you know what, that just kind of goes along with the territory of being in a church family. Will I, secondly, will I give my brothers and my sisters the benefit of the doubt and just always strive to see the best in them instead of just assuming the worst about them? And furthermore, will I stand firm? I'm going to be a pillar. I'm going to be a rock here even when Satan makes his attempts to destroy us. I want you to remember this. Whenever fusses and fights and problems occur within the body of Christ, it is not you who is the enemy. And it is not me who is the enemy. It is the devil that is the enemy. And if he pulls us apart, if he is successful in doing that, it will only be because we allowed him to do that. You make no mistake about it. Just as sure as God is in our midst this evening as we have worshipped before His throne, we have another visitor in our midst. I'm confident that every time God's people meet, the devil shows up. He might be kind of conspicuous in how he appears, and in fact we may not ever see him at all. But he is here. He is looking and seeking opportunities to frustrate the work of God and to destroy the family of God. And He is doing everything that He possibly can to come between you and your brother, you and your sister, and yes, you and your heavenly Father. And I'm saying to you this evening that whatever power He has in your life, it is the power that you give Him. Why don't you right now, as we get ready to extend the invitation of Jesus Christ, why don't you take that power back? Why don't you take... You know what, I'm tired of letting you have that. I'm tired of letting you run and roughshod over me individually. And as a result, that's causing problems with my spiritual family. I'm taking that back. And I am surrendering all of that to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. I'm giving it to Jesus because He's the one who can set me free from sin and He can set me free from your dominion. Brother or sister, if there is sin in your life this evening, you need to repent. There's just no two ways about it. I'll just echo what, Paul, or what Peter told Simon the sorcerer. Repent and pray that the thought of thine heart might be forgiven thee. The Lord is merciful. The Lord desires to forgive you. Will you repent? Will you humble yourself before Him? If we as your brothers and sisters, your spiritual family, if we can pray with you, if we can encourage you, if we can help you to make that repentance stick, then we stand ready to assist you as well. There may be somebody here tonight. I know I've not been talking to people outside of Jesus Christ. But you have gotten kind of an up-close and personal look about what God's family really is like, even warts and all. But it is a wonderful family. Think about all the groups and team efforts that go along here upon this earth. There's nothing better than being a part of this family, God's family, a spiritual family with people who will help you to go to heaven. Can we help you tonight in that journey to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins? I see water behind me. There's people ready and available to assist you in doing just that. If you're ready to do that, whatever your need might be, won't you take advantage of this moment? Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.